This week on Trek Mary Kill. Klingons, flashbacks, mutiny. Next. Great unifiers are few and far between, but they do come. Often such leaders will need a profound cause for their followers to rally around. What am I looking at? Object of unknown origin. We've come all this way, Captain. It would be irresponsible to leave whatever that is unknown. What have you done out there on the edge of Federation space? Computer, enable igniter. Captain, what signatures detected? Context our fleet command. We have engaged the Klingons. I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to save all of you. We target its neck, cut off its head. Starfleet doesn't fire first. We have to. My people were biologically determined for one purpose alone, to sense the coming of death. I sense it coming now. Mary, kill. Hi, I'm Brian. I'm Kristen. Welcome to Trek, Mary, Kill, where we watch and judge episodes of Star Trek, but always, always with love. This week, we're talking Star Trek Discovery and its pilot episodes, The Vulcan Hello and The Battle at the Binary Stars. Now, it's a little tricky because these are two discrete, like separate episodes and they're telling one big story, but I'm calling them the pilot. You know why, Kristen? Because they aired on the same damn night. Yeah, they did. <laughs> so it was just a split into two because of this big old streaming scheme called CBS All Access that Paramount was trying to push. So you had to watch part one on CBS, the actual television network, the GDCBS, <laughs> which was where Star Trek hadn't aired on network TV since like of the big the big three. Since the original series. Um, Kristen, what's your review of CBS All Access, now known as Paramount Plus? (laughs) You know, um, still getting used to the interface. Um, (laughs) If you want to turn on captions, which is something I tend to have to do, uh, it is not easy. And if you go back to the episode, just restart the whole thing for you. But also, this was like a gifted subscription to me, so I can't really say I'm that upset with it. I don't personally pay for it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, if you're a T-Mobile subscriber, at least from this past calendar year, you could get a year's subscription free for the for the ad tier, and um, and paying for the promote the uh, the paid tier, which I did when Star Trek Motion Picture was re released. Sorry, the premium tier, the paid tier, uh, the Motion Picture Remaster. Uh, I got it, and then you can watch a lot of their stuff in 4K which is great. Um, but here's what, I'm, here's what I want to get to. I think it's insane that they put commercials in their back catalog for the ad tier. That it seems like, no, I don't want to watch the commercial breaks for something that I can buy. The So I just have to use the Blu-rays most of the time when I'm watching Star Trek. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think it's okay. I think it's a war crime to put, <laughs> to oh, put the I, ads back in. <laughs> I don't... Oh, I must have a higher tier because I have never seen an ad. Oh, that's great. It's it's okay. good when you're watching the newer <laughs> stuff because I'm I'm a freak who stays up till midnight when the episodes drop. So when it was when I'm on the premium tier and I don't have to watch commercials... Look at the free time on your hands. Wow. Yeah, exactly. It's efficiency. All right, so the Vulcan Hello was a teleplay by <laughs> Brian Fuller and Akiva Goldsman uh, and A-N-D spelled out. And, I think I mentioned um, this before. Yeah, and not to be confused with the Irish goodbye. <laughs> that's right. Uh, the, the Vulcan hello, though, great great idea. That That's something I want to get into in a little bit. But Brian okay. Fuller of uh, Pushing Daisies and Hannibal and One American Gods. Shows. Yeah, great shows. And Akiva Goldsman of Star- Strange New Worlds and Transformers and Da Vinci Code and A Beautiful Mind. Uh, but they didn't write it together. 
for many <laughs> reasons. The story was by Brian Fuller and Ampersand, meaning that they somehow came up with the story together. Alex Kurtzman, uh, who is basically now the Rick Berman, Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek, and uh, and directed by David Semmel, who I believe is really just like a workman. Like he's worked in the industry for many, many years. Mm-hmm. I think he saw that he directed some Buffy episodes. Uh, so he's been around a long time. Just like a seasoned television director. Yes. Uh, CBS needed to produce this on a price. Brian Fuller kind of had this idea of Edgar Wright of Shaun of the Dead. and, and I would have fucking loved to see that. That <laughs> oh, would have been great. It we, we, know, <laughs> we know it would have been great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but at last, alas, it was not meant to be. And then Battle of the Binary Stars, the teleplay for that was Gretchen Berg and Aaron Harberts. Uh, A&D as well. So they didn't write it together, but they're basically a writing team most of the time. I'm not sure how that worked out. Story by Brian Fuller, directed by Adam Kane. There's a lot of weirdness with this one. Uh, this episode, the first episode, Vulcan Hello, premiered on the CBS television network September 24th, 2017. So this is like the five-year anniversary. Um, wow. This is a perfect time for a reappraisal to go back and and Trek, Mary kill Star Trek Discovery. I just want to point this out. This is the most astounding bit of information in 2022. It had a 9.5, it had 9.5 million viewers, mm-hmm. uh, which is astounding. Uh, and uh, against Sunday night football in some markets. Yeah. Which that's... is, I, I got to find out who was playing because they only got, let's see, what, uh, what am I looking at? Like 17 million viewers. Usually they get closer to, I think usually more. I wonder who, who was playing that year. Hmm. Hmm. Well, they claim it's an above average rating, so whatever. But I, that's usually the highest rated show total, like in America, is Sunday Night Football. Yeah, it's lead in with sixty minutes, and then also very popular. Yeah, and then and had then quite a had, drop off. Yeah, lost about five million viewers. It looks like, <laughs> but then repeats the rest of the night. So you know, people mm-hmm. were watching Sunday Football on CBS. They stayed for sixty minutes, maybe. And then some of the 60 minute crowd. Anyway, nine and a half million viewers. That's what House of the Dragon gets. Yeah. Which is wild to think about that. Uh, so anyway, who would have ever thought? And and we have no idea what the numbers are on CBS All Access slash Paramount Plus. None Close of Close to zero. <laughs> I didn't I didn't sign up and watch it like that. No, I don't No. I did, but it's Star Trek. I, I was, they had me. They, they knew it too. Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna try to tell the story of both episodes very quickly, because we don't like recapping on the show. But I also feel like if you haven't watched it, I should at least tell you what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. let's meet Commander Michael Burnham, uh, played by Sneakwa Martin Green, serving as the first officer of the USS Shenju under the command of Captain Philippa Georgiou, Michelle Yeoh. Oh, yeah. Hooting and hollering. Yeah. Uh, as she comes face to face with the Klingons, the alien race responsible for the death of her family, Michael Burnham's family, killed by the Klingons. After an unprovoked attack on the outpost where she grew up, a Klingon named Takubma has come up with an idea for uniting all the Klingon houses uh, to stop their social and government infighting a war with the Federation. So he sets a trap for the Shenju in hopes of starting this war, but his efforts are nearly thwarted by Michael Burnham, who knocks out her own captain. She like literally just gives her the Vulcan neck pinch mm-hmm. in hopes of attacking the Klingons before Takuvma can attack them. Instead, the Shenju's reluctance to fire first leads to an all-out attack by the Klingons, ca- causing Burnham to lose the ship, her captain, and her liberty. And it kicks off the war with the Klingons. And um, I am not convinced that the plan of firing first would have resulted in anything that much different. Especially since the their weapons didn't really seem to be doing much damage. No. <laughs> yeah. So this show, though, has it had a, I'm going to say, fraught development process. Uh, mm-hmm. Brian Fuller basically built himself up from Star Trek Voyager. He had Pushing Daisies and then Hannibal. And basically, he built his own cachet, and he lobbied very hard to get the new Star Trek show, which only came about because of the the relative success of the new Star Trek movies uh, from J.J. Abrams with Chris Pine and all those people. Um, And and so they were like, oh, we'll use Star Trek to launch another network, (laughs) which we talked about in the Voyager episode, this time a streamer. And uh, and. 
Brian Fuller, I think regardless of what you, what we might have come to understand about the people working at Paramount TV, Brian Fuller also seems like he has a very specific way he wants to do things. And if it doesn't match up, he's more than willing to walk away. So you have a lot of artistic stuff. You had a, a lot of corporate people. I think the institutional memory for Star Trek at Paramount has, you know, it, after Enterprise went off the air and when J.J. Abrams took over, all the people that were basically the big Star Trek stands, the people that got mm-hmm. it enough, they were gone. So there were no guardrails. And so you basically have this is an IP. We're managing the IP. It still can generate money for the company. So we need someone to just produce the content of this IP. <laughs> Brian Fuller yeah. was like, well, I'm a Star Trek guy, so I know how to make Star Trek. And they're like, we want you to just make content. It's just like, it's as simple yeah. as that. So it's a, it's a weird show because it it's serving many masters and none of them seem to, you know, none of them really seems to have a clear idea of what they want from it. And Kristen, any, any thoughts just generally what you know about the development of this show? I don't know anything about it. Actually. Nothing. Um, oh, I'm telling you all of it then. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't have, I had totally forgotten that Brian Fuller, was involved in this until I saw his name on the screen. This is what we should think of the show as. I think I feel this is the weirdest Star Trek show of all time. Full stop. It is absolutely strange. It reinvents itself every season in, in, oh, a, it? in a way. Yeah. And for a while, for the first three seasons, I think a new showrunner every year. And, oh. and so, okay. So it, yeah, it, it's sort of one of those things where it it was it's clear this is just we need to make a Star Trek show on our streaming service to get subscribers. And then they just work backwards from that idea. And um, Brian Fuller's ideas, I guess a lot of them survived into what we saw and in and even throughout the first season. I don't want to get into it. It's, it's all kind of fuzzy and it's kind of irrelevant. My recollection is, is that he, his pitch was that her actions inadvertently created the mirror universe. I don't know how that works. Oh, that yeah. Pit? So I did I did um, read a bit that there's a mirror universe. That's like, and they, they and split the season in half. exhausting. And it is. <laughs> and like, it really is. <laughs> some people are evil in there in the other one. That's the, basically the gimmick of the mirror universe because of the okay. mirror mirror. It's like, it's just the evil version of people. That's just so yeah. exhausting. What if we had evil people on Star Trek as the main character? And it's aping the J.J. Abrams show uh, movies, the style, mm-hmm. the, like the oh, yeah. visual style, even the VFX. Ooh, that, and- that Klingon makeup. Yeah, and they wow. tried to sort of reinvent the Klingons as well to make them fit the conception of what people would be frightened of. Because remember, they're the other. You have to be afraid of the other at all times. They're not aliens that you can like come to respect or get to know. It's just they have to look weird. Here's the other corporate part of this. <laughs> Paramount TV and then Paramount Studios split Star Trek up for some corporate reshuffling. So all the TV stuff basically stayed in what's the prime universe with Star Trek that we know. And then the mm-hmm. movies were sort of their own thing. And now I believe now in the, over the course of the five years, that's changed. And they've kind of started, they've remerged. But now you've got this weird thing of you've got a show that looks like the J.J. Abrams movies, but it has nothing. Yeah, to do it with does them. look a lot like that. Those movies. Yeah. And this takes place. It's set before Kirk. It's set before Strange New Worlds. Like, this is basically mm-hmm. a prequel to Strange New Worlds um, and the original series, but it's not the Chris Pine one. It's the William Shatner one. It's, it's very bizarre. So I want to ask you these questions because, Kristen, okay. actually, you have very little exposure to this. I've watched basically every episode of the show. That's Again, okay. folks, I love Star Trek. That's why we're doing the show. <laughs> so, and Kristen loves it, too. That's why she's doing the show and she's watching. But I yeah. want to ask you this very pointed okay. question. What do you think the premise of Star Trek Discovery is? Well, I could I don't know. <laughs> it seems like a traditional Star Trek show is about exploring space. This one I have no fucking clue. <laughs> yeah, the original series pretty basic, Planet of the Week, Wagon Chain of the Stars, Next Generation, a spin-off of that concept, just a new enterprise, mm-hmm. a new crew. 
Yeah, like some episodes of previous series, I think could you could even say are what like almost like a procedural in terms of being like being able to just pick up at whatever episode. This one, I feel like if I watched a season three episode, I would be like, "Who the fuck are these people? What is happening?" So I guess if I had to guess, it's about Michael Burnham, right? And the the rise and fall and rise again, I guess. I think that's a that's a good starting point. And then basically the show does sort of stick stick with that to some degree. That's basically what you could say it is. But again, not clear from this pilot, right? <laughs> no. Also, can I, I this might be the right place to put this. Um, the show is called Star Trek Discovery. We do not see the ship called Discovery in these two episodes. No. No, no. Why? We don't. <laughs> It's Star Trek. I want to see the spaceship. Very strange decision on their part, which I will bring up in a little bit. Do you okay. like the theme song and the opening title sequence? I actually like the opening title sequence. I think if I had a guess, I would say it was done by the same people who did the Hannibal opening sequence. Oh, interesting. But I don't know okay. that for sure. I'd have to ch- I'd have to look that up. I'm pretty sure not the music, but no, the, that's, the visuals. Oh, no. Yeah, okay. the visuals. I know that the Hannibal ones, and I think the Hannibal, the people who did Hannibal did the same, did the opening for The Crown as well. And I it's see. just like a studio that does opening credits. Two more questions for you. Does the mm-hmm. captain not being the main character work for you? That's also the conceit of the show is that this is our first time where it's mm-hmm. not about the captain. I guess. I mean, I, I would say I don't mind it. Okay. And then what do you think of Michael Burnham, the character so far. Mm, How do I put this delicately? (laughs) I would say all over the place. And because we get Michael Burnham as raised by Vulcans. And then we get this fucking crazy hothead who like literally commits mutiny. And is like, how dare, uh, like, of course I had to. Like, I would think if I, I would think had I known, uh, had I not known anybody that she was having like a mental breakdown in the middle of the episode. This show in particular, I think there's mm-hmm. some agendas going on more than there is uh, criticism, you know, that are warranted or not about the show. The thing they can hide behind the the critics who are, have a lot more going on besides just they don't like the show is that she's a Mary Sue character where oh. she's perfect and everything. But the thing is, she's not a Mary Sue character. No. She is a chosen one character written by. Unfortunately, some of the most successful blockbuster <laughs> screenwriters of this century. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't see that as a Mary Sue character at all. Yeah. So it's important to remember what does that mean? Well, blockbuster screenwriters are essentially writing for parent companies, uh, advertisers, uh, you know, the brands that buy in, buy the movie, and also foreign markets. And so you have to write the most blindingly stupid basic characters, and they don't necessarily have to be motivated in ways that make sense to us because you're just trying to get from set piece to set piece because you're trying to be able to, you have to the movie has to be portable enough to be sold everywhere else. So if you approach story from that dynamic, then it's basically what it's, it's a, you're going to use a hammer <laughs> for mm-hmm. every, for every, but no scalpels in this characterization. It's all that. So to me, she came out in this rewatch. Honestly, I've only seen every episode of discovery one time. I've not gone back and rewatched. So it was fun to actually kind of go back, especially five years later, and rewatch it. And it just was apparent to me that, oh, she's like a a chosen one, very sloppily written. You know, she's smarter than her captain, smarter than the science officer, a better warrior than the Klingon torchbearer. Like that torchbearer's job is to defend the ship. And she gets a lucky (sighs) kill right away. He's on his home turf space. (laughs) She's Well, I feel like like everything it's like she's very full of hubris though. And it's like, like, and that's not like 
strange for the Star Trek universe, certainly. Like, there's plenty of characters who are like that. Absolutely. But I think they had so much story they needed to tell in such a short amount of time that they're just like, okay, up, down, up, down, out, up, down, up, down. Okay, she's great. She's she's bad. She's bad. She's bad. Whatever. Great. And then, yeah. oh, yeah. but she has trauma. And right. <laughs> that might, oh, and her emotions might be clouding her decisions. Um, But I think, like, you know, had someone decided, well, let's not do it do this character arc over the course of i think it was what um like 75 minutes or something right that you know maybe it would have been better like do you think you could have started with the court martial and then you could have slowly worked backward oh boy one of my least favorite tropes but in this case it might have worked like so then you get into the discovery part the now you're assigned i think well i i read ahead she gets like assigned to a ship as a demotion right or something like that right discovery comes in in the third episode essentially you have to watch the first three episodes even the producers say that the first three are like a prologue and i thought Mm -hmm. well that doesn't seem like good planning and it's wasting the audience's time (laughs) yeah when you when you only release two episodes yes (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, chosen one stuff like she her her DNA is unspooling, right? The radiation, mm-hmm. but she's she's fine, right? And um, she's <laughs> she's like a pro at mind melding. She's an expert on Klingon culture. Um, you know, Luke Skywalker with some Tony Stark in there. You know what I mean? Like, there's mm-hmm. th- to me, it seemed a lot more like that than it did like oh, every she's amazing because Saru and Georgiou do not treat her like she's amazing. No, they they. they they listen to her, but they don't think she's amazing. Most of so. the crew, in fact, is like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yep, you're yep, cool yep. and all, but yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the series at large, the overhead. Okay. All right. I got to get this off my chest. After watching all of the all of the new Star Trek shows and going back and watching this, I there was like a wave of calmness that flowed over me because... <laughs> For the first time, I could really see Akiva Goldsman's work. And I ah. was so, there's something very familiar about what I was watching. Wait, so wait, did he, he wait, did he specifically write the Tom Cruise mummy movie? No, that was, oh, that was some, one of the other writers. That was Alex okay. Kurtzman, yeah. By the way, anyway, I, li- I like that movie. So I got through that movie, but I think that I thought it was Tom, Tom so Cruise had ridiculous. Cut. Yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> And like, I appreciate what they were trying to do there. And it was, I, I was entertained. They were trying to marvelify the universal yeah. monster. Universe. <laughs> Dr. I mean, I like seeing, Mr. Hyde show up. Yeah. It's so I like seeing hilarious. Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe is always. He was really good at it. I thought. Yeah. But you could, this time I could really feel his handiwork. I think when I was first watched, when I first watched it, I was kind of gobsmacked. I'm like, what's happening? Why are they doing this? And now after years of Star Trek Picard and being subjected to his style to now see it. And, and it's like, okay, Having now it, it all kind of, it, yes, exactly. Against your now, will. So there is that element I was comfortable with, but you know, when you think about it, it's like he wrote, yeah, he wrote a beautiful mind, but he also wrote lost in space, transformers, Da Vinci code. He did write the Tom Cruise mummy. I'm sorry. He co-wrote that, but Alex okay. Kurtzman directed it. Sorry. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Cowboys and Aliens. It's like, okay, okay. all right. Well, there's some hits in there. All hits. That's what I'm saying. Like one of the most, he and I don't think anyone considers the Tom Cruise mummy movie a hit. Do they? I think it did okay. Oh, okay. Um, It it probably made money overseas, I bet. Well, between Goldsman and Kurtzman, they are two of the most successful screenwriters in the 20, maybe in the 21st century, they might be the most successful. And then in the history of Hollywood, probably in the top 15, most successful oh, screenwriters, wow. like just box office, their, their volume oh. of credits, you know, not it's necessarily a, it's a, like it's a volume board. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not necessarily recognized by your peers as being the best, but. Well, it depends on who your peers are. If your peers are accountants, then maybe. Very well <laughs> Jesus. Damn. <Okay. laughs> Ooh. Um, that opens on the Brian Klingon. coming in hot. <laughs> Yes, um, I, I like that it opens on basically a Klingon MAGA rally. Yeah, that was that was fun. In the context now, five years later, has that. Um, 
here are all the parts I noticed where they were ripping off the Chris Pine movies. <laughs> Acting as a benevolent god to save a civilization, which they do mm-hmm. at the beginning of Star Trek Into Darkness, where they stop the volcano from wiping out those people. And here is that the is Into Darkness the one you dislike the most? It's a good question. I can't really answer that right now. <laughs> okay, I thought that you you did. I thought that was the one you didn't like that much. Out of it all is. Of it is not a good movie. I think it's fine. But I also am a really big fan of Chris Pine. Well, I'd like watch whole... him read the phone book. So, well, I mean, I, I'm, I think he's great. I can't believe that they were able to recast Captain Kirk. It's a bummer. We're yeah. not going to get three or four more movies with, with him as Captain Kirk. That would have been cool. Um, act, but anyway, so that's just what they did in Star Trek into darkness that here, there in this episode it starts off with them saving, a species that you know got an 89 year drought ahead of them and it could wipe them out unclear by the way if this is an order or if like that it seems yeah. to be in direct violation of general mm-hmm. order one which they're trying to avoid by not being seen and they but, leave a crop circle that yeah. the locals are going to be like what in the good oh my goodness we've been visited right also they saw them walking away from the yeah world. so so General Order 1 is non-interference. If this species or planet is destined to be destroyed or die off, that is a violation, theoretically, of General Order 1. It's also not connected to anything that happens in the rest of the episode, which, as you said, where's Discovery? Seems like we're wasting two or three minutes meeting these people. But anyway. It was more than that. Yeah. Rushing onto the bridge while medically compromised to warn about the big bad in Star Trek 09. It's Chris Cadet. Kirk, he's getting he, uh, McCoy sneaks him on board and gives him all those diseases so he can take him on board. Mm-hmm. And he rushes to the bridge from sick bay uh, to warn them about the Romulans that are waiting for them. And here it's the Klingons are waiting for them uh, when because the radiation from her trip, uh, which also was taken from Star Trek into darkness. They have a thruster suit going through debris in Star Trek into darkness. And here it's repeated. Almost the visuals are very similar too. The beats, the kind of the way it's cut, the rhythms of it, very similar. Yeah, I think, yeah, the the interiors look very similar. Um, it looks like it's shot very similarly. Basically, it, this is a trope that they've developed, trusting the crazy person who rushes in on the bridge and tells them to go to Red Alert. So you've got Cadet <laughs> Kirk in 09. You've got uh, Burnham here. And then remember, Lawn, she doesn't run in. But she's basically like, we need to go to Red Alert right away. <laughs> Strange yeah. the Worlds pilot. And that proved, like that seems to be like a big thing. Like, oh, if you can save the ship a, a, in a in a split second, then that establishes your character. So, again, the EV thruster suit thing was, you know, no physics there. She accelerates and then she accelerates yeah, the whole way. Like from and then you... <laughs> gravity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, zero consideration of distances, time dilation. Everything's instantaneous. So space doesn't space travel doesn't seem to be particularly uh, difficult in any way. Very frictionless uh, you know, for storytelling convenience, I guess. Even though if you build in those limitations, look at that. You get drama. You know what I mean? Like, so... Um, Georgiou and Burnham beaming onto the Klingon ship and shooting people right away. It's got the same vibe and even the way the phasers pulse as Kirk and Spock when they beam aboard the Romulan ship at the end of Star Trek 09. So it's just like a lot of taking their own stuff and relocating it and popping it in here in a way that to me was like it it doesn't make the episode better and it's also just reminding you of something that was slightly better. So um, Anyway, and then here's my question to you before we get into the grades. Mm-hmm. Is Philippa Georgiou, a good captain. Here's the evidence why I don't think she is. She never moves. She never well, thinks. I thought it was a question ship. to me, Brian. <laughs> well, I'm going to load it up okay. for you. Okay. She never thinks to move the ship towards her officer to close the distance, right? You've got a 20 uh-huh. minute window before she dies of radiation. You don't send a shuttle at the edge to get her as quickly as possible or move the ship. She lets Burnham jump the conversation with Admiral Douchebag. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. come in and then she just lets her have the rest of the conversation. She asks Burnham, what's the mood outside? Like, who cares? Why, why does she care what, what the crew is thinking in this crisis moment? Do you think um, there's a mutiny brewing? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all, Captain. Not brewing in here, yeah. Yeah. Um, she's, she, why, why does she in, 
uh, entertain Burnham's speculation about Takuma being a martyr or anything like that. If the cling, if she's coming in, starting like just follow this manic person coming into your ready room saying, "The Klingons live for the fight, but we can't kill him because then they'll they'll be driven. He'll be a martyr, and it will drive them to fight." But if their only goal is to fight, as you just said, then it doesn't matter if he lives or dies. They're yeah. going to fight. And then she says, how could you have done this uh, to Burnham and blames this all on her when the the mutiny doesn't actually cause any difference? It doesn't change anything to, to we'll have to get into that. And then finally, um, her plan to put her plan to put a bomb on the corpse to blow up the sarcophagus ship. That's a war crime. <laughs> Which, oh, yes, yeah. what Takuma did is a war crime, but I yeah. don't think two war crimes make a right, make a right crime. Yeah. So, anyway, and she, and she trusts Michael Burnham. The Klingons are going to sue an intergalactic <laughs> court over that? I don't think so. Space Geneva? Yeah. Yeah. Probably anyway, not. So that's my evidence that she's actually not, even though Michelle Yeoh is amazing and, and she's great. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I know enough from what we've seen but i guess um i mean she was fine i guess but like yeah there's the points that you pointed out also i think like she may have gotten a little too close to michael burnham and like that may cloud her judgment a little bit yeah should we say what the vulcan hello is because it does sound like a dirty sex act to me and that is not what it is go for it so the vulcan hello is explained that whenever a Vulcan would see a Klingon ship, they would fire first. And Michael Burnham then argues that Starfleet should give the Klingons a Vulcan hello. It is not, is, I don't believe that that would change anything, but you know, whatever. Maybe it would have been a full scale, all houses unite behind the Klingons, but I think it still would have caused quite an incident. Absolutely. I mean, they were there to start a war. <laughs> yeah. And like it, then firing on him, then like all the other ships show up like, oh, my goodness, he was right. <laughs> F these guys. I think that's kind of the coolest idea. And that, that's where I'm I'm hoping that was all Brian Fuller, because that makes sense with what we know of the Vulcans and Star Trek. And yeah, it, it sounds like a fun thing. Um, great scenes. <laughs> I'm starting with the scene that I actually still do think about sometimes, and it's the telescope scene where it's just Georgiou and Burnham and Saru, and she's using her her old-fashioned telescope to look out the window to see the ship that they can't quite get to yeah. for reasons. And, um, and I thought that was cool. It was a good... Uh, not subversion. It was just like a nice tweak on what we've seen of Star Trek and, and sort of an an interesting way to get us into the information we need. Um, it's, it, it was the hand of someone who's written a lot of Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, I put that the space flight looked absolutely ter- terrifying to me. Like visually, I thought it was cool, but yeah, you're right that it doesn't make any sense. Like, so I don't know if it's necessarily a great scene, but I was like, I'm, I would be terrified flying through space like this. That's insane. Oh, you know what? I liked that. No, no. I liked that scene. I was just the, 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 choice to have her yeah it doesn't make a whole lot of sense accelerate through the the (laughs) asteroid field the whole time because she can have those little stabilizing thrusters right but she's firing her rockets basically the whole time and then to slow down she doesn't slow down she just comes to an iron man stop like she's an atmosphere (laughs) yeah um and then also the 20 minutes was absurd that there's no reason to send her and anyway but it was it was exactly what you said. I was actually scared and it was creepy. And then the reveal of the torchbearer on the ship, I thought that mm-hmm. was all really well done. Yeah, I mean, it's cool to see like the Klingon. Um, what do you call it? Like their fighting implements. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's right. names for these, I'm sure. But you know, like there's various ones. Well, her and... Iron Man heads up display identifying the Batleth as a Batleth. Yeah, Klingon. Like, oh. like, yeah, like oh. who is this for? Do they know all this already? Then what's the mystery? You know what I mean? Like it should mm-hmm. all be mysterious, but they wanted to make sure for the Star Trek fans out there that they had references. Um, I liked Burnham telling the story of the Hatoria and the Vulcans, how they came up with the Vulcan hello. Yeah. I also put that Sarek telling her about the Vulcan hello, but also with that 
little caveat. I don't think this is going to work for you because you guys are humans. <laughs> and she tries right. it anyway. Yep. Or attempts it anyway. Yep. When Michael gets thrown in the brig for, you know, mutiny, um, then the it like that section gets blown out, but she's still inside the cell. So the cell is the only thing that's there. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. And then the guy just, the guy who was there just like floats off into space. I like it when people float off into space in Star Trek. It's one of my favorite things. It's a very similar shot to when that happens in Star Trek 09. (laughs) (laughs) That was another uh, homage, I guess you could say. But that scene was great because also because she talks the computer to death. Yeah. She convinces the computer to let her out. And I'm like, well, that... I don't know who came up with that, but that's Star Trek as well. So bravo. Yeah, the, the computer is argumentative and kind of sassy. Yeah. And you have to like argue with it and be like, well, come on. You have to yeah. let me go. Well, you are not going to survive anyway, so I don't have to let you go. Like, <laughs> <Right>. whoa. <laughs> so the computer being having a personality and all that, I, I thought that was great, but mainly very Kirk-like to talk a computer into Mm -hmm. doing what it needs to do. I liked when Admiral Douchebag, what is it, Chet Anderson, Brett Anderson? I don't know. It's Canadian day player, dude. Um, And I think there might have been some... Oh, my husband said he thought it was Anthony Michael Hall or something. Looked very much like him, absolutely. (laughs) Um, But he also definitely, I think there was, they were going for an idea there. You know, the the white guy with the chiseled jaw mm-hmm. and like the real all-American the guy. Admiral We're going to just... come in. Yeah. All right. Well, now that yeah. I'm here. Yeah. And I, I just like the the what the f- part of when he's on the holographic projector on the bridge, but then he's looking around suddenly and and we realize his ship's being destroyed. Uh, yeah. Being that's a with. really I put that as a really cool scene when the Klingon ship like decloaks and then is ramming into the Europa, destroying it. Well, uh, I mean, listen, the Klingons having cloaking device, absurd, ridiculous, completely (laughs) undercuts the Romulans having the cloaking device um, in Star Trek lore, but whatever. Anyway, those uh, across two episodes that that, those were the scenes I picked out. Were there any other scenes that you picked out? No, that's it. Okay. Oh, I, this is my other part that I, the Akiva Goldsman part of this, I need to bring up because I we said across two episodes. If you notice, the second episode is really like 38 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a trick they do in Picard. It's kind of like a bait and switch. These are kind of two episodes, but I'll get into that at, towards the end here. But it's basically, it's interesting. This was basically a long one episode. They had to add some filler mm-hmm. in here. So, uh, best Trek tropes. So, I have a pedantic science officer. Uh, Sarah is very pedantic, and probably for good reason. <laughs> Great performance, Doug Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a good energy. Like, the three of them had different vibes, each of them, and they fit together well. Yeah. Um, and I also put, they have a red alert, but it's quiet this time. <laughs> As we all know, I the red alert sound bothers me. That's your misophonia? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, if I hear it a little bit and then like it goes away, I'm fine. But if it's just like, you know, uh, it's it's so annoying. Well, I, I just I maintain that it would be impossible to properly work under pressure with that kind of noise and the lights going. Yeah, I liked it. I already mentioned this, the talking the computer to death. That's a Trek trope. I don't remember how many times it happened since the original series because they actually did it enough in the original series that they're like, we can't do this anymore. We have to stop. And uh, so I can't remember if it, how many times it happens in the next gen or Voyager or DS nine. I'm sure some version of it does happen, Um, but it was just great to see it here. So directly, you know, the purest form of it. And she was doing it to save her own life, which I thought was pretty great. Yeah. And we also have a Vulcan reminding everyone that humans are weak because of their emotions. Yes. Several times. I should put the the neck pinch here. But oh. I I don't know. I'm not on board with that part of her backstory, which we didn't even get really dive into. But her basically being a ward of Sarek of Vulcan. And, yeah. and we'll find out Spock's adopted sister. 
not feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one time I pro- I hope that I will not put the ne- neck pinch there, but it should go here. <laughs> okay. If it were to go anywhere, it would go here. Yeah, go here. And then I, the last one I put was, we got a lot of damage on the bridge. So, you know, it's serious. Yeah. And they didn't call it shield percentages. Mm-mm. Good, good restraint there. Well, the computer started to when. Yeah. Yeah. The computer telling Michael's us what was in the going brig. On. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Otherwise, how would we know? <laughs> okay. So we're moving on to worst Trek tropes. What do you have? Oh boy, I think this will be unpopular. Oh, okay. Using the Star Trek opening beats for their theme. Oh, really? The whole gambit is we're going to get you to think about Star Trek and watch this new Star Trek show. Okay. But I feel like the challenge is to come up with your own thing. So any dun 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 or any of that stuff that you bring in through these the newer shows or all these musical cue callbacks i think it's it's a weird the berman era all the next generation shows like that music is intentionally designed i believe it's called sonic wallpaper it's designed to be forgettable and just to kind of cue you it's tone mm-hmm. music essentially and so the fact that they the only thing they can think to do even now is just to reuse the the actually famous music that works. It just makes it stale to me. It just makes it all sound played out. So that's, that's my and the, okay. seeing the Delta Shield, seeing the Delta mm-hmm. Shield at the beginning. I'm kind of sick of the Delta Shield. Did we they don't know this, the people making Star Trek now, but the Delta Shield is the Enterprise's symbol. I am oh. in the original series. Each ship had its own symbol. And I'm fine. I'm totally fine with the Enterprise, Captain Kirk's Enterprise, surviving the five-year mission and being such a famous ship that then that just becomes a Starfleet symbol. I'm totally fine with that. But this is clearly before Captain Kirk, right? Oh, okay. So they so there's a bit done of anything. a continuity error. This is they're basically reselling Star Trek back to us, and so to me, they're using what what the focus groups can think of the focus group panels that they get together. What do you think of when you think of Star Trek? Does the symbol remind you of Star Trek? You know what I mean? I, I so I'm just kind of tired of, of certain touchstones that we've been using now for 57 years. I think mm. we can move on. That's all. So Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I put Burnham is clearly very injured and then runs to the bridge instead of just calling or something. Right. <laughs> Or sending somebody else. Like, you're going to die of radiation poisoning, which is very unpleasant. It's yeah. not just, you know, you're a little bit injured. Like, it's going to be bad. Um, the hollow, hollow projector subspace communication. It's not a trope so much. It's something they tried in Deep Space Nine. Didn't work then. The, that they thought that they could bring it back and do it better. I think it's shown it doesn't work. They, they ditched it. They don't do it in Discovery, I don't think, after this episode or very much longer after that. Because it's a it's an idea where you're like, well, them just looking at a TV screen is boring, so we got to do something to jazz it up. But even Deep Space Nine took it even better. They, they just had the actor there. They didn't do any sort of visual effect over them. So it's like oh. someone just standing in like a, a circle with the light ring on the floor <laughs> to indicate that it's on. But then you just have the actor there. So you're actually saving money to do an idea. Uh And then you only have to show the visual effect when they appear or disappear. So it's like a transporter effect almost. And then here they decided to go really go for it. Having a multiple directions. (laughs) Yeah. They're like force ghosts and all this stuff, but it, it doesn't work. Get like drop it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then my last one is only two people go to the Klingon ship to capture a prisoner of war. And it's probably the two smallest people on board. That's why this is the craziest Star Trek show. (laughs) We need to capture him. Okay. We'll send the captain and the first officer, the mutinous one. No, you sent two red shirts. Come on. Um, First of all, the idea of capturing a Klingon alive is just stupid. But their plan was simply we're just going to have like him. Hand, handcuffs. Yeah. yeah, there's no like creative. Yeah, no creative uh, restraints or anything like that. Nothing like that. Ah, oh, wild. Absolutely wild. I don't know if I, I'm in the West 
if these are worse Trek tropes or just these were tropes that were just so poorly done that they bothered me. I don't know. Saru, Saru's Kelpian. He thinks everything is suspicious. That's mm-hmm. kind of a Trek trope where it's like one species trait, right? Yeah. <laughs> Mono trait. So there's and, that. And this and, is a new species for the show, right? Yes. And his okay. whole thing is like, I can sense fear. I'm constantly afraid. And I'm a prey animal. Like, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I don't know if Starfleet was the best thing for you to sign up for then. So, <laughs> also, have you met some prey animals like house cats? They're not always that great at sensing danger. Oh, no, they're they're um, they're uh, a hunted. What is they're uh, <laughs> Yeah, they're the they're the prey, not the predators. No, well, house cats are also prey animals, too. Oh, sure. Yeah. OK, yeah. I guess I don't think about that when they're. In fact, animals. I believe that is actually why they bury their poop. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. There. And Just then a little fun fact for you. Our cat, our cat sprints. As soon as, <laughs> as, soon as she buries the poop, she gets. See, there you go. There, yeah, there's yeah. your little response. Yeah. But again, <laughs> if it were coyote, she's toast, right? Yep. Oh, I didn't have a, any, a I didn't have a chance to mention this. Poor Saru, no standing desks in the 23rd century. Oh, he's so tall. And then yeah. he has to hunch down on this console. That's still a standing console, but it doesn't raise up to him. He gets no, um, there's no ADA accommodations yeah. in Starfleet. Hmm. Absolutely wild to me. Just <laughs> Starfleet doesn't fire first. I don't know. That seems like a tr- the trope to me is labeling what Starfleet is or the Federation is as sort of a marketing slogan. I don't know that it works. It makes Georgiou weak, you know, because her whole thing is like, we're not going to do anything. We're going to yeah. we're going to try to talk to them, but that's it. <laughs> and we're not going to do anything else. So that seems like they're intentionally doing it. Anyway, um, we're running over here. Most of it's time quality. <sighs> Kristen, please, because I have okay. a lot to say. So okay. First. I put the Klingon makeup. Um, it's wild. Um, also, there's a lot of stuff that just makes them look like the orcs from Lord of the Rings. And it's very almost Game of Thrones in some of the scenes with the Klingons. Um, also, the uniforms and the dialogue to a certain extent. Like, there's one scene where Michael Burnham is like, I have to leave the bridge. And the captain's like, are you kidding? And then there's another scene where Michael says, oh, we're about to face off. And I just feel like those are very two for at least two phrases in this, uh, these episodes that seem so out of place that when I, when they were uttered, I was like, Ugh. like, Wait, I don't know. It, it seems out of some of the dialogue seems a little bit out of place. Like you wouldn't see it on another show. I mean, it's, a, it's, we talked about this. And we had that problem with strange. Yeah. We have the strange new worlds, the same thing. There's certain like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. Um, like certain things that are certain dialogue that you wouldn't hear on some of the other series. All right. Now I'm going to run through mine speed run through okay. mine, but jam me up if you don't like this. So you mentioned game of Thrones. I think the game of Thrones influence on this is a very much of its time quality and it starts and ends to me. I mean, actually, you know what? You had it totally right with the Klingon. They tried to like shove in this, uh, the 24 great houses, that's you know that's at least somewhat consistent with Star Trek lore, but like sort of Takuvma's rise and mm-hmm. sort of this person with no name suddenly getting power, the Vok character, the albino Klingon. Yeah, that's definitely there. The cast stuff, the the palace intrigue. That's definitely Game mm-hmm. of Thrones. But I also think just the idea that we need to have our Ned Stark beheading or red wedding moment. But they were so impatient they had to do it as quickly as possible to show that they mean business. So killing Georgiou definitely seems like the episode was designed around if she dies because the way that it's set up now it's it's enough to be like michael burnham started the war with the klingons that's Mm -hmm. an interesting enough story but you have to add in this dramatic death of we've got this name actor michelle yo and we're killing her off you know that she she's our sean bean in this case yeah and so i think that affected it and here's how you know that they it's basically like they they had like a frenzy to do this And then they realize their mistake in the morning because they have done nothing. After she died, they did nothing but contrive to keep Michelle Yeoh around. So so they knew they had to bring her back because they're like, wow, we just lost something really great. But we are so committed to this idea because that's what that's how you put, you know, make a mark. Yeah, you have like, yeah, 
killing off a main character that could be very likable or is very likable is um, very much of this era of TV. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The dark visuals, everything dark, so dark. <laughs> dark, Actually, gritty. When, when we saw Strange New Worlds, I was like, I bet this is going to be so dark. I can't see it, but it wasn't. And this one is a lot darker. You're right. I think I've already touched on all this. Use the touchstones, the things that our focus groups recognize, associate with Star Trek. Make sure you hit those hard. The Delta Shield, the you know the the theme, you know the 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 concepts, you know Vulcans, Klingons. People know that stuff. The mind meld. Use that, right? And you and and then the Marvel influence. So Game of Thrones, but also Marvel, and the summer blockbuster idea of you have to have humor, and so the humor undercuts every moment. Because you don't want to take, you don't want the audience to feel like you're taking this so seriously. Because if you seem to be taking it seriously, maybe the audience will not not jibe with it, which is weird. Because like the audiences, audiences have paid money or have sat down and are taking the time to watch your thing, so they do have some level of commitment. So the idea then that you would say to them, "But don't worry, this isn't that serious," is is a weird yeah. pose to have. I think, you know, in like a Marvel, like a three hour Marvel movie, you need to have some levity. And in this, like, Star Trek is already fun. I don't know, I guess, like an hour long Star Trek episode, I think you're probably fine. Yeah, I just think the idea of, uh, on behalf of the Captain Georgiou and the entire USS crew of the USS Shenju, we'd like to welcome you to Flight 819 with nonstop service to the object of unknown origin. The temperature outside is a brisk minus 260 degrees Celsius. We are forecasting some mild debris, but anticipate a smooth ride. This is what the con officer is saying to Burnham as she's leaving the ship and going on her thruster pack to investigate this mystery ship that's just out of their range through an asteroid field, which we find out is the Klingon ship. And that's what's being said while it's going on. This is not advancing character. It's not advancing story. It's just there because you want to have something over the visuals and you want to make it clear that this is supposed to be fun and the energy is supposed to be up, which undercuts yeah. the tension of what is this mystery thing that's just outside the range of our senses. And I also don't think that that kind of that dialogue really establishes that this is a well-connected crew either like it, it's just like one guy being annoying kind of you said they should have started with the court martial and gone back i at this point i think it's such an overused device in yeah. storytelling the second episode is a 38 minute episode that's yeah you know that's nuts um that is that's an hour-long episode okay but it starts with a two and a half minute flashback and then the one and a half minute intro so the first four minutes of a 38 minute episode are spent on stuff that does not advance the story, the cliffhanger that we were just left with. So then we have the seven years earlier to give us some slightly more backstory to do nothing. Um, this is the other of its time conceit is the idea that you talking pe- to people in your mind to visualize and dramatize internal deliberations. Oh. Basically talking to a figment of your imagination strictly. It's strictly for the audience's sake. And yes, you can get great acting and maybe some insight. And obviously Akiva Goldsman, like this is what a beautiful mind essentially is. You know, Russell Crowe's talking to people in his mind, but he uses again in Picard and like that kind of stuff. I think a lot of shows do that now and it can be interesting. Even The Patient. I can't believe The Patient has come up twice on this podcast. <laughs> but the uh, the Steve Carell Still show. Still don't watch it's fine. Uh, it's fine. Uh, the it's fine. Steve Crow show on FX, but it's a, it's a device. It's just a, and it's a dev- it's a very modern device. It's very of its time. True. The line must be drawn here. Great lines. Uh, Georgiou, when she tells Saru that Burnham agrees with the threat assessment and he says, really? Ensign Connor agreement between my senior officers. Note the date and time. Uh, mm-hmm. I just like that line. And then uh, that's it. <laughs> I think I just like the way she said certain lines as yeah. opposed to what the lines were. So I put, um, oh, I can't even read my own writing. Well, we'll try it anyway. I like when Sarah says, I'm most certain you did not call me for emotional solace or support. I can't <laughs> read my own writing. And you cannot save lives that have already been lost. And then also, Michael Burnham says, I can't help. I'm locked up for mutiny. <laughs> Uh, great love it 
Like, please help me. I can't help. I'm locked up for mutiny. The Anton Caridian Award for Best Performance. Um, I guess we're just going to give it to Michelle Yao because I like her so much. Yes. No, that's the... I, I okay. feel like we should try to just give this to one person as much as we can. Okay. I mean, it was hard in the Avery Brooks and Patrick Stewart thing. I mean, come on. You had, we had to make yeah. an exception there, but... And it's I bad. And in certain episodes, it's like everyone's pretty bad. Yeah. And... No, but she's... Yeah. For this one, it was good. Yeah. I like her. Michelle Yeoh was, was good. I mean, just listening to what she's what was written for her and then seeing the performance it it's basically wow that character was not well written it's it's because she has the charisma and the mm-hmm. leadership the authority that that's pushing it through um that's that's what stood out to me okay we're in agreement then yes or was do you have a different one okay all right the shatner which we say is not necessarily just bad acting um i know we're supposed to give it to one person but can I give it to the Klingons roaring at the funeral at the beginning, towards the beginning? You thought they or went too it... far? Yeah, it was a little much. Well, that's or, that's or the, can we give it to the all the Klingons? Well, that's that's just you being racist against Klingons. That's a cultural custom for them. They're warning the afterlife that a warrior is on its way. Okay, but it was very <laughs> hammy. Okay, the Klingons, the speech. Sounded really bad yeah. with those teeth appliances, but then when he spoke English, it didn't. And I'm not sure they decided to dub one, but not the other. I'm not. I'm not sure how that works. Yeah, the Klingon, the cadence that they're speaking Klingon in, it's a bit jarring, and I don't remember it being that way from no, the other shows. They definitely changed it up. Yeah, they had to make the Klingons scarier. But your your yeah. orc your orc point, I think that was the mm-hmm. thing. All right, so you're going with the Klingons. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going with Sonequa Martin Green. <laughs> okay, I'm that's gonna fine. St- I'm going to say a couple of things in in her defense. It is very hard to play Vulcan. To in the yeah. history of Vulcans in Star Trek, it's basically Leonard Nimoy, and down number two. Or no, then number two is Mark Lennard, Sarek, the original Sarek. And then Jolene Blaylock's probably three, but kind of a distant third. And then then it's like way down. It's like a 90-way tie for the rest. <laughs> they do have a Vulcan in the last season of Discovery, and she was pretty good, actually. I can't remember her name or any of that. We'll get to it at some point. So it's very hard to play Vulcan. Now, she's mm-hmm. not playing a Vulcan. That's important to remember. She's not she's a human who's been raised by Vulcans. Well, she does in the in that one scene where she shows up. Yeah, well, so she that's what I'm saying. So she's mimicking the Vulcans, mm-hmm. but it's it is um an actor interpreting what it would she might be playing an actor uh, a character who's interpreting what it means to be a Vulcan. But I kind of just thought the kid got it better, and the kid was just being a yeah. kid. The kid version of her was it like a more real person, and I never really bought. Um, I'll take after she gets out of the brig, her performance calmed way down, and she was like a normal person. But before that, she was very high str- or like very hyper. She spoke very hyper. She's kind of panicking during the desert walk, but then she's also very smug. Um, and then when she oh, comes yeah. in, and she's like, oh, well, I guess I'll just assimilate with the locals. And then we see one of the locals. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, honey, you didn't do you didn't read the notes. You didn't do the you didn't do the research what these people look or, you know, beings look like. Yeah, the she's speaking so quickly. Sometimes it sounds like she's just running lines. And we kind of talked about this with Strange New Worlds, where it's written to sound like or be performed as like patter or banter kind of bantery her, she is comes off as wild mood swings like you're never sure where she's coming from in any scene and it is partly the writing partly the directing. yeah i, think I mean I, earlier i said it, she's all over the place what part of this are they teaching at starfleet academy mutiny is wrong and yeah. bad <laughs> don't start a klingon war yeah don't. some more information about how Klingons operate, I guess. 
maybe that what Georgiou did is a war crime. <laughs> maybe. I I mean, I you was think I they did, just they'd probably just cover that up. Yeah, I did look into it and it seems like it's kind of on the line. Okay. Cuz I I guess I don't know. I didn't dig deep enough to see what is considered an well, enemy combatant I, I think... and non-combatant. Mm. He was dead. It was a dead body on the field of battle. It seems like desecrating a dead body would fall under That's a war crime. It's kind of a crime. minor war crime, though, isn't it? That's One true. Body. And also, they were in the heat of the battle and still trying to. Yeah, survive the battle was still going. Yeah, yes. they had the Klingons happened to start collecting their dead before the battle was over. So. And it was being collected by the thing that was also inflicting the damage. So it'd be like if a tank's picking up the bodies, is the tank suddenly not a com- combatant? I don't know about that. <laughs> Probably not. I think it's questionable. I I don't know if they're teaching. Oh, by the way, a really good way to blow up another ship is to hide a bomb on a dead body when they come to collect it. Like, I don't think they're teaching that. It's kind of wild that that character is the one who comes up with that idea when she was the one that's like, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to try and, to talk to and them. Like, <laughs> maybe don't fall for this obvious ruse and then bring all the ships close by to all get destroyed they should always teach at starfleet academy it's a trap (laughs) if you think it's a trap it's a trap yeah so how would the predecessor captain slash show resolve the conflict the enterprise or star trek enterprise is the predecessor show so it'd be captain i have not seen a single second of star trek enterprise that is the one star trek property i have zero exposure to and so I couldn't tell you. So Enterprise is a lot more wild, wild west. It's essentially supposed to be like a prequel to Star Trek. I mean, we're in mm-hmm. how many times have we said that already? Uh, do, you think he, do you think Captain Archer hung out on Deneb 4? <laughs> uh, well. jo- Jonathan Archer uh, Valsell is going to be a good topic of conversation. Ooh. Um, <laughs> uh, but he, I would think because it's a lot more wild, wild west, all the conventions of Starfleet or what it's things stand for would not have been built in. And and they were much more there on their own. So the, the cavalry is not showing up. So he's either fighting or, or it's either fight or flight. And that that was the other weird part about it is like, why are they hanging around? Yeah, I was like, why don't you just leave? Like, listen to what's his name? Saru. who's like, we should leave. Yeah, that's my that other thing fun. that I always say about. I've said with almost every episode we've watched is just leave. (laughs) Just abandon them. Let's go. I think the enterprise, uh, the Archer enterprise, they wouldn't even mess around with the null energy field. If they're, if they have to go in and if something catches their curiosity, I think they would be a lot more like, well, let's, let's blast some of the asteroids around it and see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. So for the final grade, Trek, marry or kill Brian, what are you going to give it? I am giving it a reluctant trek. It is a movie quality production <laughs> right down to the popcorn movie level writing, both overwritten and underwritten. Um, it's just trying to rush to the next big idea. I'm also giving it a reluctant trek. It does look pretty, but doesn't have much to say. And Michelle Yeoh, you should yes. watch it for, for her. And just imagine what could have been if it had been the Michelle Yeoh and uh, Michael Burnham show or Sonequa Martin mm-hmm. Green show. So trek it, but maybe tell, just keep the sound down. <laughs> Do you think that they should have done like a full hour episode, have that wrapped up and then the second episode is then getting into it? Like maybe I, make it yeah, a but solid, they have to... like a solid 60 minutes, like cut 15 minutes of the crap. They needed to they needed to find a better way of getting her on discovery. I think that is the the problem of how do you transition mm. from this prologue of her, if you just stick with the idea of like this one person because of her background makes an impulsive choice or the one she did something she thought was right, but it ends up starting the war with the Klingons. How do you then get her onto the starship discovery? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. she's been sentenced to a very long prison sentence. Right. To me, the the thing you do is you play it sort of like, um, but basically you just have them leave the battle. She's in an escape pod and Discovery picks them up and she's the only one either left alive from Discovery that knows what happened. 
So she's got to live with the secret kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe somehow it comes out over time and, and you've got that going on. Now you've got like the, the gritty, the person with a secret kind of story. Um, oh man, Kristen, we haven't even get, gotten into the spore drive. Oh, <laughs> no, we haven't. For those of you who aren't sure what we're getting at, the third episode establishes the Starship Discovery, which is where the show takes its name from. Starship Discovery is an experimental ship that uses mushroom spores to travel the mycelial it network. Does so it? It says that there's... No. So if you're a Star Trek fan, you know that there's subspace, and that's how you travel through warp. And there's an infinite number of subspace domains. What Star Trek Discovery says is that there's also a mycelial network, basically Full of mushrooms. You can, no, you kidding. can, but I mean, the idea is basically this: Star Trek Discovery would have been a show about tripping out on mushrooms and traveling the galaxy and having mm-hmm. adventures. Tripping out on mushrooms—that's a cool idea. Uh, they just couldn't get into it, and they couldn't leave the Game of Thrones stuff alone. So, this is the weirdest Star Trek show ever made. Yeah. <laughs> and uh there is no one way to describe it. And all that said, somehow this was a watchable pilot and not yes. terrible. <laughs> yeah. I was very I mean, surprised. I, and also, um, it's not as long as some of the other ones, and so therefore I didn't actually have to take a break or anything. I could just watch it. Be sure to like us on Facebook, Instagram, wherever we are. Give Can't us a possibly review. be on Facebook. I we? guess we're going to be on Facebook. It's still oh, one of the okay. top marketing tools. We want people to listen, especially Star Trek fans, mm-hmm. to give us a listen. Um, until then, TMK out. Bye.